Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. Today we're talking DACA. Yes, so um, if you are not familiar, DACA is, uh, it's an acronym and it stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So this was an immigration policy established in the Obama administration in 2012 and DACA essentially allows certain undocumented folks who entered the country as children to receive a renewable two-year period of deferred action. So uh, deferred action from deportation. Um, and it also gives you eligibility for a work permit. Um, and so you renew it every two years. And there are approximately 800,000 uh, recipients uh, currently in the U.S. But the, the whole point, which is important about it, is that you have 800,000 people who have gone to the government and admitted that they came into the country illegally and are forthright in giving their information away, which is a really important part of the narrative and the story because they want to have a better life and they know that they didn't choose to come here, that their parents chose to come here and they're trying to make the best life possible now. Yeah, and so uh, you have these folks who, this is their home, right? They they have been, they came here as, as minors, as children, this is their home, uh, this is their country, this is this is where they live. And so uh, what we have now is, uh, once again, the Trump administration is singling out a group of people uh, in another oppressive way, and this time is is moving to remove DACA. And, and this conversation for me goes beyond, am I anti-Donald Trump, which I am. I don't think that he's the best human being in the world. And it's beyond for me political ideology of Democrat or Republican. We, we know all the time that immigration in itself is a controversial issue for a lot of people. And there's a lot of ways that people want to tackle how we go about it. And this one's a little bit more specific because this is not something that needs to be removed. There was a current, there was a former president, Barack Obama, who decided that, yeah, we need to deal with immigration and we need to talk about it. Um, but one of the things that we need to do is protect the, the people who are going to be most marginalized here, which are children and minors who actually are, are dreamers and want to have the best opportunity to survive and thrive in the United States. And in fact, we're going to give them the opportunity to do that and create laws that protect them. So for another administration to come along and remove that is not a decision that's made upon any legal grounds or constitutional grounds. It's purely made on an ethical decision that says, we don't want these people here. Right. And what's, what's wild is uh, Corey and I were talking earlier about how socially immigration uh, is this sort of controversial topic, but theologically... It's not, right? When we look at our faith tradition, we see some clear insights into how human beings, uh, even specifically foreigners uh, in a foreign land, are to be treated. And so we kind of went uh, back and forth with understanding this as, is this societally sort of convoluted but theologically clear? Or how do we make sense of this as people who are um, following Christ in a place like Los Angeles in 2017 with something like DACA on the table and a Trump administration in power. Yeah, and with so many questions that we want to ask at, with New Abbey, one of those important questions is, what does this say about God? 
So when we remove something like DACA, we want to say, what does it say about God? Does it say that what God cares about most is a specific country at a specific time and specific people who currently live there, and he doesn't care about immigrants or foreigners or aliens who are going to come into that land, or he doesn't care about other countries? And in a lot of ways, the United States, for a long period of time, we've had this view of a manifest destiny where our faith, primarily being Christian, uh, has been overlapped or woven into the, the narrative of, of patriotism and nationalism, which is fascinating because the country starts off with the separation of church and state. Um, but in a lot of ways, what we want is to blend these things together. And then we can't see clearly the differences of where patriotism might end um, and where uh, and nationalism might end versus where the, the the kingdom is integrated or moves throughout those things and very much beyond any specific patriotism, let alone one to the United States of America. Yeah, and I feel like uh, we talk a lot about this idea of a lazy theology. And I feel like something that's happened in the U.S. is that a lot of evangelicals and a lot of Christians for many, many years have felt like, well, I just have to go the way my country's going because America is, uh, you know, God's country, this, our leadership. It's a Christian nation. Yes. We hear phrases we like We are that. a Christian nation. Yeah. It's it's on our money. Look it up. You know, this kind of thing. And so I think what's what's happened is people have felt like, okay, well, if I just go the way America is going then I am going the way my faith is going. And I don't have to reconcile the two. Um, I don't have to decide. And now we seem to be at a really sort of a fork in the road, which we've been before, but um, where truly you will either defy your faith tradition to go the way of your nation, or you will defy the way of the leadership of your nation um, and go with your faith tradition, right? So how will you sort of aid and and support and and come to the the need, meet the need of folks who happen to be undocumented um, and will need help, or will you not? And so for the one of the you know first times at least, and I'm experiencing it at this point in my life is it's a very clear line between the empire and our faith which is something we've seen in scripture. It's just, it's fascinating to see it unfolding right now. And you said something important, which is this idea of empire, which is not something that I grew up talking about in my evangelical tradition. Um, we didn't see the United States as an empire that somehow was opposing to that of Jesus. Um, we saw somehow, in the, in the church that I grew up with, there was an American flag and a Christian flag standing next to each other. And that was incredibly important. And in every Memorial Day, we would have... Uh, patriotic videos of troops who had died and how they defended themselves for this country. And that was somehow similar to what Jesus did on the cross. And all of that ties back to how we understand DACA, because what happens is that we begin to buy into the ideal that the United States of America and the kingdom of Jesus are somehow the same thing yeah. and that they're about the same ideals and that they're about the same goals. When in reality that they're not right. The United States of America is about protecting and preserving the ideologies of the United States of America which are not mutually exclusive to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus goes beyond all borders. It is a ultimate reality that God is calling us into, a reality in which human beings see themselves loved by God, made in the image of God, and receiving the grace of God, and that it's an inclusive call for all people regardless of where you live. 
And countries can't handle that kind of complexity because countries' primary purposes are to secure and to protect themselves, right? Um, and to really do that at all costs, which a lot of times means violence, or in this way, deportation of people who may not look like you, talk like you, think like you, do whatever like you. And so now this is a question, again, um, kind of similar when we talked about um, Charlottesville, of how is our faith and politics integrated in a way in which we're standing for the values of kingdom and Jesus over and against any type of patriotism or nationalism we might have. Because at the end of the day, I might be very thankful to live in a place like the United States of America. When I call 911, I expect a response because of the country that I live in and the taxpayer dollars that I have. But then what do you do ethically? What do you do when you come to a place where the empire, the government, the institutions are now somehow doing something or perpetuating a division over and against this kingdom of Jesus that is demanding out and calling for a healing of all nations and all people, reconciliation of all things, a renewal in that way. Um, how do we make sense of that? Yeah. And it's a it's an interesting time to, to be a Christian, right? Because... Um, there haven't been, uh, well, there have been a lot of times, and I'm speaking very specifically to as long as I've been alive, which is not a lot of time in the history of the world. So many. Yeah. <clears throat> so many years of wisdom. Yes, I am just. Within your bones. 31 long years. Uh, but what's fascinating is I, as I feel like the evangelical church has been able to just think and talk a lot, right? So. What do we know? What do we say when we gather together? What are these things? And and now there's act, there's action tied to it. Either you are doing nothing, right? And that speaks volumes. Either you are aligning yourself with saying, yes, no, I think the way of the United States is the way of Jesus. And you're making that declarative sort of action statement, or you are going to be opposing the empire and say like, no, I'm going to care for these people. And so now there is, there is, action required from from the statements that we say and i think it'll be super interesting to see how a lot of the church responds to something that feels you know very clear given our um faith tradition but that stands at the uh, the opposition of our our nation and so we'll i think it, to your to your previous point we were saying is the trump administration has done a good job of creating some clear groups, some others, some some boundaries, kind of making it um, an us versus them and, and making it feel like you have the opportunity to be on, on the us side, right? Yeah. And I want to go back. You, you made a good comment of, like, is the United States going the way of Jesus mm-hmm. or is Jesus going the way of the United States? And how do you answer questions about that? Because if... A lot of times what happens is we have Jesus going the way of the United States, right? We believe that what the United States does is somehow part of the manifest destiny that God has for this country. And clearly we have privilege and blessing and power, whatever language that you hear, because God somehow wills that for this particular country. But if you believe that the United States goes the way of Jesus, well, now that we need to say, okay, then let's explore that a little bit deeper. And oftentimes the, the the verses that are used to support the United States um, are things like Romans 13, which is having a respect for the authority of governance, 
or first Timothy, um, there's passages about praying for your leaders. And this is a really great moment where we have taken the Bible literally, but we're not taking the Bible seriously. Because when you take the Bible literally, you're just looking at the surface of what the Bible's saying, the actual words that are being put there. And even that, there's a whole complexity and layers of questions of the translation that you have from the original languages and meaning and, and on and on. We can go with that conversation versus taking the Bible seriously. And in taking the Bible seriously, we see that really from the beginning of scriptures to the end of scriptures, the scripture has a commentary against power structures, particularly the power structures of the religious institution and the power structures of the government. Um, because the, the Bible knows, right? God knows that those two institutions are incredibly powerful yeah. and have an incredible ability to either help or hurt people, right? Um, to make life a little bit better or a little bit more difficult. And so it's fascinating that the gospel of Mark starts off with, this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the son of God which you may read that, and maybe this is somehow an implication about the divinity of Jesus. But if you lived 2,000 years ago, there's a politically charged statement that is challenging the way that you live your life and the integration that you have in the world. The gospel, the first part of that, the Greek word there is a word for euangelion. Uh, this euangelion means good news, but Caesar would declare a euangelion every time that Caesar would conquer a, a territory. And so the, we've heard it before of like the Pax Romana, this peace of Rome. But there was a reality that this good news of Caesar, that life is somehow now better because you're conquered and you should worship Caesar, came at a cost of being dominated. Mm -hmm. And so bend the knee, Game of Thrones, right? Or be destroyed is the way of things that Caesar would do. So then when Jesus comes along and uses the word euangelion, which is not exclusive to the Bible, but borrowed from culture, right, is where it started first. Now it's a subversive counter narrative to the kingdom of Caesar or the empire that's already existing. Because in Caesar's government and in Caesar's rule, what happens is that people are subdivided. There's the rich and there's the poor and there's the slaves and there's masters, there's women and there's uh, men and there's Greeks and there's Jews. But interestingly enough, Galat Galatians says in Christ, there's neither these things anymore, right? All of those things go by the wayside. So you already have the very opening lines of the gospel of Mark challenging a government power structure, but we don't read it that way anymore. Again, we've said it in here a million times because we're the most powerful people the planet has ever seen. And so we have lost the power of what good news actually meant 2,000 years ago and what it can continue to mean as it's been um, kind of confiscated by powerful countries over the history of the world. To keep going on that a little bit, so this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, right? Jesus, who is this Christ, now this is challenging the religious Israelite Jewish power system back in the day, which was that they were looking for someone to come in and to conquer the empire or the euangelion, this good news of Caesar by violence or force. And so for them, they were looking for a Messiah or Christ figure who was going to come in and dominate the Roman empire. Again, Jesus was never that person. So already a counter narrative to the power structures of the day and the expectations. And then the final part, which was, uh, right, this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the son of God. Son of God is not a claim exclusively to Jesus's divinity. Son of God was a challenge to the divinity, to the divinity and the authority of who Caesar was. 
again, uh, a saying that's about Caesar is that Caesar was the son of God. Caesar was chosen by the gods to rule. And so when Jesus uses that phrase, Caesar had used that phrase long before Jesus ever walked the earth, which is so incredibly important to know that the gospels are using phrases that are challenging the empires of the day. Now you say, well, I've never heard of that before. Well, of course not. They didn't write blatantly. You don't, when you're in the midst of an empire, you don't say, here's the deal. This Jesus is challenging Caesar Augustus and wants to undermine the power structures that are taking place and the religious institution. No, you use subversive language to invite more people into the story and so that other people can be like, oh yes, I've heard you on Galleon before. I've heard son of God before. If you're Greek or Roman, right? Or if you're Jewish, you're like, oh, I've heard Christ before. And then Jesus comes in and destroys all of the previous definitions and says, no, in my kingdom, right? Now, Jesus doesn't just say it. He goes and lives it. We care for the poor. We don't vote on DACA. We live out a DACA where the immigrants and the widow and the Samaritan and the prostitute and the least of these are always the people that we're caring for. Yeah. It's it's the most vulnerable populations, right? That's right. And and that's what's so interesting is I think being an American, you know, I think there's a little bit of you can start to feel like guilty or bad sort of coming against this, but it's it's understanding it, it, it's not even like uh, let's it's just living out the kingdom reality of like we are going to care for these vulnerable populations. And right now our undocumented um, children, you know, minors, like the dreamers, these are our, our vulnerable populations and what are we gonna do? And I was telling Corey earlier, I had this professor in college, um, Monica Gannis, shout out to Monica if you're listening, I doubt you are, but um, she- And uh, if you are, we'll send you a $20 gift yes, card to Chipotle. right now. If you respond Monica, to this podcast. send me an email. Um, but. She taught, she taught a film class, and in that film class, she said, if you want to know what a society um, is afraid of, look at the villains in the movies for that time, right? So in the U.S., um, in the 80s, right, we had a lot of Japanese villains in our movies, and then we had, there was also this, like, weird time in the 80s where it was, like, powerful businesswomen, which... We don't need to get into that, but yeah. Shoulder, what are those Yeah, the called? shoulder pads, shoulder yeah, pads. And like a power suit. Um, you know, and then as of, you know, uh, you know, around 2000 to like 2010, we had a lot of, you know, we see Middle Eastern sort of villains. And, and, and it reflects sort of what people are thinking. And what's fascinating now is you have so many movies where uh, the, the, the sort of concept or the, the idea is that uh, the the population gets split up into factions or to districts or to segments. And what you see in, in those movies is the most vulnerable population in whatever, however we have split the society up, the most vulnerable population will come back and rise to power. And so I think there's this, there's this innate fear kind of happening of like, we know what we're doing, right? We know what we're doing in this country. We are othering people we are setting people up, and I think there's this deep fear that the further we get down drawing lines of us versus them, it's going to be the people that we try to push farther out that in the end come back. Um, and it's, it's, I think there is this, you know, we are, we are all sort of, not sort of, we are all created in the image of God. 
And, and I think in that we have this natural tendency to, we, we want unity. We want that, we want that, that kingdom reality. And I think we can feel when we're moving away from it, there's some serious fear of, I think we're going down a dangerous path of splitting people up into these groups. And the deeper we get, I'm kind of afraid of what might happen. I think it's really important that when we feel that we hold that tension or we hold that complexity because the reality is that whether you're a Democrat or Republican or any political ideology, that ideology does not hold the breadth and depth and the width of what we believe about the kingdom of God or where Jesus is trying to lead humanity. And in this instance, uh, we are saying that the scriptures broadly from beginning to end, the very way that they were written are challenging the power structures, right? And that we need to challenge something like this because the scriptures are very clear about immigration and the poor and caring for the aliens, right? And in, in the prophets, what's the one condemnation that the prophets constantly have towards the government and the religious institution? You didn't care for the widow, the orphan, and the poor right? Which was unbelievable for the prophets because that's exactly where God rescued you from. God rescued you from the empire of Pharaoh and Egypt. And so how could you ever turn your back on people who want a better life, yeah. right? There's, there's a, a hypocrisy there that the scriptures don't really have room for. And we need to allow that conflict to, to that tension to shape us because there's going to be another day where potentially the political ideology that you may favor may also make a move, right, that is counter to the things that you care about. For example, I'll bring one up. I was very critical of the Obama administration, um, and I tended to politically lie there uh, with their use of drones, right? The Obama administration killed lots of people with drones, and I ethically have a lot of issues with that, that we are using technology that dehumanizes and distances ourselves from real human beings dying on the ground. Um, and I sh it doesn't matter where my political ideology lied there. What mattered was is that people were being killed and their lives were being taken from them because of a, an American ideology and not because of the kingdom of God. And it's the same in this instance, that there are young dreamers who have done nothing wrong, right? Yeah. Who are simply trying to live the best life possible. And someone wants to come and take that best life possible for them and send them where, right? We're just going to send 800,000 people somewhere, yeah. right? Um, and take their life away from them for the sake of proving your point with a political ideology. Yeah. And the kingdom of God, you know what Jesus does in the face of political ideologies? Dies. Yeah. Gets himself killed because of it. And I think there's a lot of, especially in church, in our evangelical culture, there are so many pastors or leaders who don't want to speak on the topic of immigration because it is like, quote unquote, controversial. When I'm like, this is the most important thing, right? Like it, it's reminiscent of like a Hunger Games or a divergent of like, we're living in the capital. We don't want to bring up what's going on in District 13, whether or not we believe it or not, but that will always sort of work itself out. And the kingdom ideology and the kingdom reality is with these dreamers, is with with the folks that we're drawing lines in and saying, okay, you're over there. It's with the LGBTQ folks on the other side of the Nashville statement, of the people of color on the other side of the Klan, you know, marching in Charlottesville. It's with, um, again, the dreamers, right? It's, it's it, that's where it lies. And so I think the decision um, that we're going to be faced with as 
Christ followers is, okay, are we going to be with that kingdom reality? So how does this all come to the ground? We've talked a lot about action and believing in something and uh, sort of moving in that way. And I think what's, um, it's twofold, right? There's a way to be involved on the political level, right? We we should be advocating for the things we believe in. And then there's the sort of the personal level. And a lot of this with sort of rescinding DACA, we'll see how we'll see what happens next. Um, but right now, there's certainly a lot of steps you can take. Yesterday, I texted a number of uh, resists, you know, and then they tell you who your congressperson is and you um, are able to do it that way. I think Corey's going to give us a phone number here in a minute you can call. Um, because at the end of the day, what we want is um, reform in a big way. DACA in, it, in itself was was a Band-Aid on a larger issue. And so if this is something we believe in and something we want to do, then there are ground level steps we can take right now in terms of uh, contacting your elected officials. Uh, and then a lot of it will be in the next few months as this sort of pans out and we see what's going on. Um, be present and aware we will be as a church, as a community, of what is the need, and we will try to meet that um, in whatever way we can. Yeah, and I think it's important, and I liked how you said that the DACA is just a, a band-aid on a larger issue. Because at the end of the day, when we talk about kingdom and we talk about Jesus and we talk about our faith ideals, we're not gonna we're not talking about life in the clouds. Yeah. We're saying that if kingdom and Jesus and any of this stuff actually matters, then it works on the ground level and it's integrated into the actual contexts that we find ourselves. And we find ourselves living in Los Angeles mm -hmm. in 2017. And so we are asking, how does this euangelion, this gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, respond to the empire of the day? And one of the ways it does that is politically, mm -hmm. right? How do we find ourselves voting? How do we find ourselves active? Because at, at the end of the day, it will cost us something probably our time, probably our energy, and potentially our money if we want to see reform or change um, for the least of these in our culture. Because we do have the privilege of living in a country that has what seemingly is unlimited resources, and we have choices of where we want those resources to go. Yeah. And I want those resources going to the poor and to the needy and to those that are hurting, for me personally, more than I want those resources going to nuclear submarines, yeah. right? And so I can call a representative. And if you want to call a representative, which is a very practical thing to do, because a, an executive order is one thing, Congress making a law is another thing. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the Trump decision is going to force Congress's hand which is the reason that Obama initially made this executive order because Congress was unwilling to make a choice because of what, what of what it might cost them politically. And we're saying we have a vote in that, right? We have a say in a representative democracy of how we want the ideologies or more importantly, this greater reality of this Jesus kingdom lived out. So you can call a representative at 844 847 3 222 again 844-847-3222 and this will immediately link you from wherever your phone's calling to your local representative and every time that you call a representative now i've heard it said before that every time someone calls a representative it's worth like a thousand people in their district saying yes i'm about this thing mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times people just don't make that effort 
And so we need millions of people who believe that human beings are not illegal, right? That human beings are worth more than political divisiveness or what's going on between party lines, and that we should never um, put the least of these, the poorest of the poor, or marginalized groups um, at the hands of political ideologies who are battling it out on a stage to get more votes. That's just unacceptable, yeah. and we shouldn't be about it. I think other practical ways that we can get involved are what do we do as a church, right? How are we willing to invest our time, energy, and money into our communities? Uh, a specific way that we could do that, again, living in Los Angeles in 2017, is that we live in a county that is 44% Latino, right? So there are a lot of people who you know, who probably know somebody who is uh, currently receiving DACA or who is currently feels threatened by ICE or by immigration policies. And maybe a, a great place to start is simply listening. This was something that we saw in Jesus all of the time. When he goes and meets the woman at the well, the first thing that he does for her is he listens to her story, right? He listens to a Samaritan woman, a Jewish rabbi of the day, listens to somebody who was not kosher and who was not like him. And he brings for her a greater reality, which is the reality of when you're someone who's in the position of privilege and power, how are you listening well to the stories of those who are not in positions of privilege and power? Because the reality is you may, after listening to a story, be able to come up with some very creative ways of supporting someone, such as helping them find a pro bono lawyer. You might be able to just Google some things, right? You might be able to go ask some questions or do some research or find some support in a way that they may feel uncomfortable because one of the realities of this is 800,000 young people already came forward to the U.S. government yeah. and admitted who they are and where they're at as an effort to make their life better. And now that very information may be used against them to destroy their families and their dreams, which is, seems evil in yeah. a lot of ways to me. And, and, and owning and understanding, you know, your privilege as someone, so my privilege as someone who, you know, uh, I am a citizen. I was born like I can do things and advocate for things in a way. And so, how do I leverage that to to, um, to someone else's uh, use? And I think what you said there was was so good. Of there are things you could do. You could call your elected officials. You can um, text. You can advocate. You can do all these things. But listening to someone's story uh, will will enable you and empower you to meet a need in a way that you know Corey and I as non-recipients of DACA, you know, will be limited in our understanding of what the need even is. So how do we uh, listen? How do we um, get active? And how do we uh, commit to uh, many, many months to come of supporting a vulnerable population around us um, in a way that makes sense? And so I want to end with a quote from Shane Claiborne. And it says this, when people begin moving beyond charity and towards justice and solidarity with the poor and oppressed, as Jesus did, they get in trouble. Once we are actually friends with the folks in struggle, we start to ask why people are poor, which is never as popular as giving to charity. One of my friends has a shirt marked with the words of late Catholic Bishop Dom Helder Kamara. When I fed the hungry, they called me a saint. When I asked people why people are hungry, they called me a communist. 
Charity wins awards and applause, but joining the poor gets you killed. People do not get crucified for living out of love that disrupts the social order that calls forth a new world. People are not crucified for helping poor people. People are crucified for joining them. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.